0: we are a huge market it's not a niche we're a mass market so the idea that uh, appealing to or being vocal about uh, your lgbtq plus inclusion credentials running counter to a kind of uh, commercial imperative doesn't make sense we see short-term boycotts we see short-term boycotts have their effect but those things don't take into account longer-term trends of market making
1: welcome to the media leader podcast i'm jack benjamin 2023 has seen a startling spike in anti-queer rhetoric and misinformation around the world. In the U.S., trans people have been significantly targeted by right-wing politicians. According to the Trans Legislation Tracker, a website tracking legislation that targets trans people, over 566 bills have been introduced in federal and state legislatures this year that seek to block trans people from receiving basic health care, education, legal recognition, and or the right to publicly exist. The rest of the queer community has also been regularly attacked by a growing chorus of bigotry and that has spread uh, to other countries around the world. U.S. brands have been ensnared in the escalating culture war. Bud Light was notably victim of a right-wing boycott for a partnership with transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney. And Target received a high-profile onslaught of threats against staff for offering Pride products during the month of June. Both companies responded by capitulating to pressure. As has been expressed by a large number of speakers at our own events and writers in our columns, it is clear that media properties, brands, and advertisers must do more to support the queer community and speak out against anti-LGBTQ plus misinformation, especially in the months outside of Pride. But how should they best do so? Cass Naylor is co-director of Advocacy at Advertising, the not-for-profit LGBTQ plus advertising and marketing advocacy group. He's also an independent diversity and inclusion consultant and campaigner. And until recently, he worked in comms and marketing for the Financial Times. Cass, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast to speak on these issues. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And we're also joined by my colleague, Ella Segar. Ella, pleased to chat with you on here as always. Thanks so much. Cass, first of all, I want to know a little bit more about you. Tell us a bit about yourself, how you got into media, um, and also what, if anything, has changed since you entered The industry, especially as it relates to how queerness has been viewed within the industry.
0: Sure. Okay. So the context for all of this starts really when I moved to London in 2014. And I immediately started working as an investigative journalist. Um, Me and someone I went to college with and one other contact of ours came together to to, um, fill what we thought was a gap in the media space, which was. Um, exhaustively researched investigative content around political issues for the age demographic of 15 to 25. So that kind of like um, that area that I think TLDR news speak to quite well at the moment. But I started out doing that and that's where I ended up moving more into looking at social issues. I did a lot of work around the 2015 election and the topics around that. Obviously, at the time we were kind of um, starting to have this, obviously, you know, equal marriage came into effect in 2013. So we were in the immediate kind of post the the dizzy heights i think of um optimism about where we were going as a country with regards to lgbtq plus rights in that kind of early 2010s period um i was with them for a while i kind of remained uh, interested adjacent to current affairs for a time um skipping ahead a few years because i was studying at the time as well um i ended up at the ft in 2000 and oh good as me i think it was 2018. I was like I have my own C V here just to make sure get the years <laughs> right. But um yeah, I started out in events, but I very quickly moved through the organization into various sort of special projects roles, publishing roles, and then I eventually ended up as the um as the global coordinator for the communications and marketing department. Um, which looks at the FT's reputation as an indus- as a business more generally, uh, and thinks about that in the context of our commercial editorial priorities. Um, but at the time, I also was running the LGBT employee network, um, Proud FT, which is a fantastic organisation within the FT, um, really kind of leading the conversation. And I, you know, not to not to big <laughs> you know, other word too much. I was the, I was the co-chair for around about two years, um, and during that time, we sort of wanted to really hit at some important but difficult work that needed to be done um, It's sometimes easy to think that activism is all about rainbows and logos and badges and flags and all that stuff is important. But we really wanted to tackle an issue that was nascent in the media space. And we were seeing it develop in real time, which was this pivot to talking about trans people as essentially a political football. And mm. that kind of really, really came to the fore from 2017 through to 2019 and, and has reached a fever pitch now. So we've we've identified that the number of articles in the British press that reference trans people over the course of the last five years has gone up 217%. And over a commensurate rate, at a commensurate time frame the rate of hate crime against trans people has gone up 154%. I can literally put these graphs next to each other and the correlation is is very clearly obvious. So there's a role here. There's some. There's a role here for the media or really a responsibility within the media to look at how it's currently talking about these issues um, and think about the responsibility of having a kind of platform like that, not just, you know, the newspaper I've worked at, but, but other media entities too. And I worked with the BBC, The Guardian, um, other media groups who have had big internal inclement issues around these topics are all, all very well documented so i i was in that role for about well four years at the ft two years in those previous two roles managed to get a trans inclusion policy passed which is the most comprehensive trans inclusion policy in the media space in the uk at the time that was with a view to essentially going to the other media companies and saying we've here's this example um, it's like, why don't take this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Take what we've done and roll with it. We, we unfortunately we couldn't talk about it a lot publicly because transphobes started to come for the company as soon as we even started talking about having a trans inclusion policy. So obviously, with my PR hat on, the risk management bit came in, and you know that had consequences. But I think it was we managed to roll the policy out from the UK to the US. Now I say we, they. So it's 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 working, but it it kind of became a, a bit of a, a white whale for me looking at. Um, what is the relationship between uh, money, the media and public opinion and and what are the forces that are underpinning that and how can they be influenced in a more positive direction so then I've been involved in advertising for some years during that time but very very tangentially I was asked to join the advocacy what was then the activism and advocacy team, I have since rebranded it to just advocacy, um, which speaks to my theory of change, we can talk to you a little bit about in a little bit, but I really wanted to get into looking at the ecosystem of how advertisers, brands, agencies, um, media owners, regulators, advertising, technology businesses, how they all operate in this space and, you know, willingly or otherwise, have created a, a kind of ecosystem of hatred where media owners engage in kind of really really horrible and it's not just trans people it's not just lgbtq plus people we see it with migrants we see it with um benefit claimants and people of lower socioeconomic status it's happening to many different demographics of people but it's put in really stark focus when it comes to talking about lgbtq plus people um and really looking at how to change that we're like looking at the 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 money that powers it and and how we can talk about responsibility in that in that system especially in the run-up to the election next year which we know not just our election, but the American election too, is going to be contested on these issues. So it's only going to get worse. And that's
1: kind of why I'm doing what I'm doing. (laughs) Mm. I'll have many questions on how you hope to accomplish all of that. But first, can you tell me a little bit more about advertising? Um, Because I know you mentioned you've been working with them for a while, but only recently in a very official capacity. And and Ella, I think, do I also hear that you've joined the the Slack channel? The
2: advertising Slack channel is great. Yeah. And I just, yeah, it's a very recent join. And uh, I've been kind of watching from a distance for a while. So, but it's um, a lovely community. It is, it does seem very lovely. (laughs) And
0: we definitely, there's so that, and that's kind of how we started, really. So I always say that um, advertising as it currently stands is an organization with two aspects one of which looks inwards, it looks at the industry, it looks at pastoral support for LGBTQ plus people working in advertising, and that's not just in the agencies, but in-house and in the brands and in every other part of that ecosystem I mentioned, and looking at how we can promote inclusivity, promote inclusive hiring, LGBTQ plus people at the top of these organisations, in the decision-making spaces and stuff like that. Um, but it was very much a, a community group rather than a uh, externally-looking advocacy or campaigning organisation, there were iterations of my team in previous versions of advertising, but we we struggled to kind of pin down a theory of change that we could all kind of get on board with. I'd been involved in both of those previous iterations and seen them rise and seen them kind of fall apart. So knew that I wanted to do something a bit different. And now advertising has this dual function where... We are simultaneously doing the internal bit, and the Slack community is part of that. It's you know, it's the mentoring scheme and the training that we do. Like we we do an enormous variety of things: services, consultancy, and advisory, and um, you know, policy production. Considering that we're all volunteers, none of us get, none of us get paid to do this. Mm. Um, so it all lands on a Sunday or all lands <laughs> on an evening. Um, but but yeah, so we we started out originally as an organisation called Pride AM. Um, which we got feedback, that sounds like a radio show. So so we decided to rebrand, reorganise the organisation a little bit. So we were a charity and now we're a company limited by guarantee and not-for-profit. But with that kind of came a bit of a a renewed focus in thinking about advertising as as a force for change in the advertising sector and how we can use our access and our membership and our credibility to... Affect policy change in the agencies, policy change in the brands. Really convene those groups and actually try and get concrete measures to change the way this business works currently. Um, so that's what we are now, essentially, where the kind of do all seventeen hands. Not never enough time, but but having good impact. I think it's getting more
1: impactful. Mm. You, you've mentioned the theory of change m- multiple times already, and. Uh, what what exactly is your theory of change? I mean, if you could boil it down to uh, uh, just the you know the boilerplate.
0: So broadly, we're we're of the opinion that the commercial forces can be used for for good. In this context, um, we talk a lot about responsibility in capitalism. We talk about, because there's there's a tendency, and we, we know we have these conversations. My, my boss, um, Lucy McKillop, was on BBC Radio 4 on Friday mm. on Antisocial talking to uh, Brexit Party MEP, and, and he kind of illustrated this view that we run counter to against quite quite nicely, actually, because he's very much like businesses exist to extract profit. Mm-hmm. They exist to generate profit for the shareholders, and that is their sole and absolute responsibility. And there is no other consideration really that needs to be made Uh, and anything that restricts that is anti-business anti-freedom etc whereas we generally have the view or at least i i certainly have the view that you can look at businesses as actors political actors i mean i don't necessarily like the fact that they are but but that's the case it feels like so um, so we generally, we, we believe in the power of business to change the way that it operates and kind of working within that structure, which comes into the second part, which is that we are not really a um, shout from the barricades organization. There are organizations that are, and they are um, incredibly important to the, the sort of the matrix of organizations trying to pursue this work. But we are much more of a advocacy group. We want to get into the decision-making spaces. We want to be talking to the people who take those decisions uh, and guiding them. So it's much more quiet. It's much more consultative. It's much more, we, we're not publicly shaming people. We're celebrating good work. We're quietly having conversations where people don't do as good work in order to basically help them do better. It's not about, you know, try, trying to humiliate people for getting it wrong because we run into this issue of people are terrified of getting it wrong and they don't do anything. Um, And if they don't put enough thought into that, then we can end up with situations like Bud Light and Target and, you know, other examples in the UK as well. So really the theory of change is about getting in and hearing all sides, which can be difficult sometimes because, you know, sometimes you're dealing with people who whose views fundamentally contradict your right to a dignified living, which is hard and I pivoted very much into trans inclusion specifically on this point because I'm not trans, I'm cis, which means that I can I can maintain a, a, enough of an emotional distance from it to be to kind of get into that room and have a have a, a you know a conversation as, as anathema as it feels like sometimes. But then the second point is about credibility, and we are seeing a lot of people people's views be driven more by entities they consider to have credibility than necessarily ideas they consider to be credible so again that's been part of it i really want advertising to be the basically anybody who works in advertising who is involved in a process i want i want the word advertising to be at the back of their head any point in that process what would be the view of what no what would be their perspective what would be their view and to have that kind of Ubiquity within the space. Um, so, yeah, that's that's really it. It's just getting into the spaces and and kind of twisting the ratchet, as it were. But, you know, making change there. It's like
2: slowly kind of moving the dial a little bit. And I, I think it's one of those things, that fear of getting things wrong and of m- making headlines for the wrong reasons or having any kind of backlash f- for a brand campaign that you've done or anything like that is is so real whether the, and it's where it's kind of across the borders Um, you know like the from a um people of colour perspective like the Sainsbury's ad that was um spotlighting a black family that got such a backlash yeah. but then it's if anything gets difficult and you just pull back go okay we're not doing that again then that's never we're never going to make any progress
0: and it's even more dangerous yeah like not doing anything is bad enough it doesn't fit with the way the market's going it doesn't make commercial sense it doesn't make moral sense I don't think but it's even worse when you kind of do something and then receive backlash and then run away Mm -hmm. because that only emboldens the people who are attacking you Mm -hmm. that tells them these tactics work we will continue doing this and that's the reason why advertising had a very big campaign that we got about 120 different organizations advertising groups civil action groups the world federation of advertisers sponsored this pretty much every big advertising agency group and every big association in the in this country and we're also doing work in the u.s to get it as well it was about standing your ground because this has become a a point where we cannot afford to give any more space to the people who want to eradicate us from public life and that's what it is this is fundamentally coming down to people who do not want to see lgbtq plus people in public not in art not in advertising not in media They just want us to not exist like, you know, like it was the 1950s again. And we cannot afford to allow that view to have any kind of prominence. And running away when you receive backlash is one of the surest ways to empower people who will continue to bully these companies, bully the people who work for them. Because it's usually directed at individual people, leaders and anybody, anybody's name they can get hold of. Yeah, it's it's despicable stuff, but unfortunately, it's become a it's become a tactical consideration now for those of us who are promoting inclusion to think about these things.
1: Mm. You you mentioned earlier the the sort of role of responsibility that companies have, that brands have, and it spoke to a recent op ed that um, our editor Omar Oakes wrote. Um, I wrote it to, wanted to read a, a, a quote from it. He said, "Quote." ethical practice and profitability are not mutually exclusive nor incompatible, and maybe media owners should generally be more vocal when it comes to issues that really matter, such as the environment, wealth inequality, or inclusion. But this seems like a lot to ask when businesses should and are legally obliged to, let's not forget, be focused on making their shareholders money, unquote. So it kind of is straddling both sides of what you mentioned in terms of businesses ultimately have a responsibility to to, to make money Mm -hmm. versus the sort of Businesses as a political actor, which they are seen at least in in the U.S. If you know, you can make it. You know, oh yes,
0: yeah, so as the hobby lobby stuff. Yeah, well, that, that, that that's slightly that.
1: different view, but yeah. That, well, that's just my you know yeah. the, the background of the country that I'm from. <laughs> different different here, I imagine. But I, I I wanted to hear your reaction to that, um, Ella. Perhaps you could you could start as well. Where do you see this? Are, are businesses primarily just out there to make money, and how, how much should they should they lean into these more like social issues?
2: I think sometimes some of the conversations tend to be, well, is it a brand's place? Um, If you're, say, an FMCG brand, do you need... Is it your place to then get involved in these conversations? Does it relate to your products at all? Mm. And then there's that word of kind of authenticity. Is it performative? Um, But I do genuinely think that, I mean, especially when it comes to being ethical, when it comes to being inclusive... I don't think that's mutually exclusive for companies that started out with that kind of ethos. I think that it is possible for and it probably in future is going to become it's going it's becoming more and more important because consumers are choosing or a lot of consumers are choosing brands based on how they present their views on these issues and also on the environment. Mm. So it it's one of those things that I think that people are going to have to pay more attention to
1: has it become a little bit more zero-sum than perhaps it used to because i i I mean pride didn't used to be such a backlash month which which we saw this year which was i mean i thought kind of crazy in particular yeah this year's especially um where a, a brand just looking to you know put a put a rainbow flag up or something which is the most Minor insignificant thing that they probably could do to to support pride that month uh, uh, would receive backlash and people boycotting their products. I mean, is is it becoming a, a sort of choice for businesses more so than it used to be?
0: Well I think there's there's one thing that's important to identify about the the backlash that we saw over pride which mm-hmm. was that it is it's very patently the result of a coordinated campaign. We know that you know Matt Walsh and the Daily Wire are on out here saying aren't their theory of change is basically bully the companies um to stop doing this stuff. He's on you know he's on Twitter saying this exact things so we have we know that it's it's being organized by a small very very focused group of people who want as I said the erasure of LGBTQ people from public life. Um, but to the point about the perceived tension between the kind of commercial priorities and ethical priorities for business, we know I've got about a dozen surveys that, or oh, sorry, not a dozen surveys, a dozen, a dozen pieces of research um, ranging from, you know, the World Economic Forum all the way through to primary research done by various market research agencies that show between two thirds and four fifths of people are more inclined to buy from a brand whose values align with their own. So we have empirical evidence that that is true, and that's true across twenty five different markets. Um, it's as true in the UK, France and America as it is in Nigeria and Pakistan and the Philippines. That's where this research comes from. Um, and the trends show that it's actually getting more significant, especially in Western markets. So we know that there is an ethical interest in from people um, who they want to buy from brands they they believe are doing good because you know it's certainly in FMCG, there's so many options. Like what is actually differentiating these products? It's how good people feel when mm. they buy them. You know, they don't want to, and uh, for you know, if we're spending what little money we have nowadays, you don't want to end up propping up an organization who runs counter to your your very kind of reason for being. And we also have concurrently statistics that show that more and more people are identifying as LGBTQ plus than ever before. Um, I don't think that's because people are becoming more queer. That's just because people are more free to be queer mm-hmm. in the public world now. But but those two statistics together show a a trend that brands really should be getting on board with. I mean, the pink pound, and I don't really like using this term because it's a bit nebulous, reasonably well-evidenced estimates of the pink pound put it at between $1.6 and $3.7 trillion globally every year. So we are a huge market. It's not a niche. We're a mass market. So the, the idea that... Uh, appealing to or being vocal about uh, your LGBTQ plus inclusion credentials running counter to a kind of uh, commercial imperative doesn't make sense. We see short-term boycotts. We see short-term boycotts have their effect. But those things don't take into account longer-term trends of market making where queer people who previously would not have bought Bud Light, or well, in, this, in the Bud Light case, everyone boycotted them because they did it so badly. Right, uh, And that's the reason. So you saw, like, you know, the right wing is boycotted it to start off with. And then the response was so bad. And Dylan went on um, Instagram, I believe it was, and said that she had just felt abandoned um, by Bud Light. And then queer people boycotted them. And mm-hmm. now, you know, they're seeing the economic effects of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but Grind Coffee in this country uh, and had a similar sort of uh, pile on, and they saw their sales double. In London, so you know there's a very, very easy to identify uh, opportunity, and thankfully, it makes it easier because it also runs parallel to the the ethical imperative that I think a company should have to promote these values. But ultimately, it comes down to you need to make sure that your company is doing it right internally, like belong belong at Pride. Like if you're going to come to Pride, make sure that you can justify to yourself that you belong there, and that involves not just being vocal although i wish more companies were more vocal about um the the, the statements they've signed on to or the campaigns mm-hmm. they've joined or the organisations they support financially um but also internally what are your processes what are your you know um what are policies in place do you have how do you protect staff in- yeah.
2: what employee group do you have like groups do you have or have you set up or like sort of pride events internally or support for employees that that you could put in place yeah so What's it's your- not just like a an Instagram post with a rainbow flag on no, one one and, day. And that gets
0: seen. Like we mm. can see. Queer people know what pink washing looks like. We're very, very sensitive to it now. And we react very badly to it. Yeah. Um, and they're not getting any better at it, it seems. Mm. So you need to engage with your queer employees. And the forum to do that is through the staff network. I'm a big believer in internal employee activism, advocacy through staff networks, ERGs, BRGs. Mm-hmm. Um, lean on them; they are your they are your experts. But make sure that you deserve to be showing up where you're showing up. And then be loud about it because we need companies to be leading the charge. We need because it is all peer pressure, right? One company kind of leads the leads the pack and goes, "Okay, I'm going to be a bit brave. I'm going to be out there thinking of um, Nike and Colin Kaepernick, for instance. Mm. Um, I'm going to I'm going to go out there and I'm going to be you know bold and unapologetic.
2: Exactly, yeah.
0: not backing down, not being seen to prevaricate on the issue, but saying this is our value, this is what we believe in, uh, and being confident that the market will respond to you in the, in a way that is positive. Um, but you need to kind of get your own shop in order before you start doing stuff that loudly Um, because then it just looks inauthentic Mm -hmm. and then you're not going to get the the benefit
1: Mm -hmm. we we, we've mentioned pride a number of times already in the conversation we're you know two months now since pride i I know that you know ad spend support tends to come out during the month Mm -hmm. of june but has it continued since then? I know Ella, you you've written about this issue and spoken about it a quite a quite a bit uh, as well with also like South Asian Heritage Month. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's other examples, holidays like like Eid or Hanukkah, uh, where th- there might be some advertising you spend around that time period, but then maybe not so much throughout the rest of the year. I mean, w- what is the uh, market looked like post pride? Has there been any continuation of support since you know the past few weeks? That's a very good question actually.
2: Yeah. I I think for me personally I haven't I think sometimes it depends on the the different the brands. Like sometimes they will have you'll see like the odd rainbow or that sort of thing that that and for instance on my email signature I've just kept my my pride flag on there because I don't want to change I don't want to just have it for June and then change it change mm. it back. But I think you see little things, and I think there was an ad that I really loved, the National Lottery ad, which was just, it was just like, it's a kind of classic brand kind of ad, and it's a a romance story of, they meet in a pub, and one of them's got a National Lottery ticket in his pocket, and it's like, it punctuates, and they just go through the time, in this 30-second ad, they go through these different time periods, and milestones of their relationship and the national lottery tickets kind of there and it's a gay couple and it doesn't feel like really sort of in authentic to me at mm. least. And I it's it's not often that I send ads to people or show them be like, look, this is an amazing ad. But it was I genuinely it was very uplifting. And I think that was probably came out around June, July, but I don't think it was a specific kind of this is for pride ad
0: no it definitely it was it's part of the kind of theme of usualizing lgbtq plus lives to people um there was another advert similar sort of premise i believe it was might have been t-mobile potentially it was on a billboard not far away from where i lived and i remember taking a picture of it and sending it to someone as well i mean Mm -hmm. like this is just i I almost didn't clock it Mm -hmm. which is which is odd but also lovely yeah for somebody who works in this kind of advertising space to be like Oh, OK, well, there's something that was so innocuous to me, so normalized, so usualized that I almost didn't notice that it was um, an LGBTQ plus or featured LGBTQ plus people. Um, so it's a good it's a good indication that I think um, companies are starting to cotton on to this, um, this this topic of representing us in an authentic way. Obviously, we've seen, you know, examples in the past. I don't remember there was a specific H&M advert. It was a Pride advert, incidentally, from a few years ago. And it kind of represented bisexual people in a really odd kind of... I I don't really want to say it rose to biphobia, but it basically implied that bisexual people are fundamentally unfaithful. Um, Oh, that old hmm. trope. Yeah, yeah. love that. So this is the kind of... the issue when you don't have queer people involved mm-hmm. in the process of putting together the brief for the ad or the casting or stuff like that and that's stuff we talk about as well um but i think in terms of uh in terms of pride we always see this kind of cyclical process of companies really getting into obviously that because it's a window right it's a moment where they can capture a market that's i don't really know what the impetus of it behind it is really but um what in particular because of the nature of how this pride month has been Specifically, this Pride Month, as you've identified, Jack, it's like it—it's feverish. Like the the whole thing about um, uh, not just Dylan, but also cases like—do um, you see Edinburgh Zoo? Edinburgh Zoo having to fend off um, backlash on Twitter because they they put something trans inclusive on their innocent smoothie. Did a did a, um, a thread on Twitter, which is an informational thread, and they did it in partnership with Mermaids, um, mm-hmm. the, the the trans charity. Um, and they were just dogpiled and they ran they backed away as well they said mm. you know it was a mistake to get involved in this and
2: wow I mean I didn't know that but I think if you're doing it they've obviously gone to the experts in that area and they're it's they're trying to put out information and then it's that kind of thing is is quite shocking that it can escalate so quickly yeah it's and not like, advertising mm. <laughs> just an
0: attempt to uh, enlighten some people about the nature of you know, specific issues that mermaids talk about. Mm. And and it's really... And, and then we get to the issue of Costa and the fact that, you know, they put a trans... or oh, sorry, not even a trans person. We've not even confirmed this person is trans, by the way. This person just has a double mastectomy, this art piece.
2: Yes, this, it's a mural, isn't it's it? It's a stylized um, yeah. art
0: piece on a van.
2: On a van, yeah.
0: And it's turned into this enormously overblown thing. And it does speak to the trend that we identified earlier on, which is that it's getting it's getting worse. In this country for instance, we've um we used to be first on the ILGA Rainbow Ranking for um, inclusivity, legal, political, cultural, financial inclusivity for LGBTQ+ people in Europe. We used to be number 1 in 2015 and we have since slipped to number 20, uh, sorry, n- number 17. We went from first to third to fifth to ninth, to 13th to 17th. And that's in the in the years since equal marriage. Mm because a lot of people took equal marriage and went cool
2: we're done now. we're done
0: now we won well done everyone crack right. the champagne inclusion has been achieved and in reality that it's that um, ambivalence or that apathy that's led us to this point but what brands do seem to be doing and we've noticed this and our partners have noticed this as well is that the reaction to the pride month this year was so rabid it's actually made a lot of people go hmm, okay, Maybe we should probably be talking about this and engaging with advertising, engaging with, um, you know, the conscious Advertising Network or Stonewall and, you know, our ancillary kind of uh, friends who do this sort of um, this sort of work. There's definitely been more interest uh, and we're having much more frank conversations with people because, you know, we're now it's now so evident this is becoming an emergency mm-hmm. and even people who are relatively on the fence who weren't necessarily aligned with the issue or really aware of it, are coming out of the fore and saying, this has become quite... Dangerous. Yeah, exactly. And they know it's going to get worse. So I hope, and I'm, obviously we're working to make sure that that, that trend turns into uh, an outcome in time for next year. But yeah, it's it's always the situation of everyone gets very interested in LGBT people around May, June, July, maybe into August, because obviously Pride's run all the way through summer. But then, when it comes to September, we've moved on to something else, <laughs> mm. and it's not productive.
1: I'm I'm kind of glad you brought up uh, Twitter earlier and the harassment that that happens on on social media more broadly, and, and even even broader than just social media, but but any media. There's a lot of misinformation mm. that was being spread as well this summer. That includes on, on places like Twitter, which is now now known as X. Uh, I'm, I'm, do i need to call it x i'm not sorry, sorry I'm like, <laughs> you if, if elon
0: musk can't even name his own daughter her proper name i'm not going to name
1: twitter <laughs> the new name um i'm aware part of advertising efforts as well has been to sort of steer advertisers away from misinformation uh, uh that's being spread about the uh, lgbtq community uh um i'm curious what that actually looks like because it's, it's a very difficult Space and it's a huge topic, probably its own podcast topic. Frankly, uh, on how to sort of steer advertisers away from misinformation. Mm. But but what have you guys been doing uh, about uh, about that issue?
0: Well, so that's the point where we start looking at the role of the media owners and the publishers, um, because obviously I come from a media background. Um, i have been a journalist myself as well. I I think about the the kind of uh, the responsibility of people who have a platform like that to use it or well, to use it responsibly. Um, so at this point, I tend to draw a distinction between misinformation and disinformation because it feels like there's so much misinformation and misinformation can be incidental or not. Um, we try and address misinformation. Absolutely. But it is usually an accidental thing as, as distinguished from disinformation, which is the active policy of trying to put out misinformation in order to drive a narrative. And we're very focused on um, disinformation because we can look at the actors that are perpetrating it. And in this case, specifically on you know trans people, take a really uh, a, a couple of good examples. Obviously, Twitter Twitter is an example of where a company has abnegated its responsibility, its editorial responsibility for content on the platform. We know it's basically a conscious policy decision by the new uh, the, by the new ownership, and as a result, it's turned. You know, I mean, Twitter was already quite bad before, but but it's become you know horrendous now and yeah we are we are advising brands to look twice at whether their um whether their content appears on the platform and what it appears next to i think since the um there was a, a they're, they're desperately trying to get their advertisers to come back now under under linda yaccarino um and part of that uh you know they're offering all these new formats and stuff it's they're completely missing the point which is that advertisers are banning the platform not because they have enough they don't have enough formats to or advertise. Or targeting
2: or whatever it yeah. is. Yeah.
0: They're, they're running away because it's become a toxic place for brands and for people. Uh, and there doesn't seem to be any interest in addressing that content issue. Twitter is an issue of a sort of a, kind of a company policy thing. And then you get an example like GB News, mm. who just, I mean, I don't think I need to tell any of your listeners... what kind of stuff GB News comes out with Um, or the fact that it's you know it's it's calling itself a news organisation and it's just the import of um, American style the conflation of news and opinion um, Mm -hmm. which is just has been so unbelievably poisonous to the American political discourse and now we're looking at actively importing it into this country it's just it baffles me and we have conversations with brands about whether they want to you know appear in GB News and its kind of and other entities like that, but then it's also you know broadsheets, um, the Telegraph, the Times, the Mail, the Guardian. There's been lots of organisations that have engaged in this cultural stuff for you know for to drive attention maybe, and then the attention is sold to advertisers or or to short reader numbers or or whatever. There may be a million reasons why, but all of it is stuff that we we look at quite intensely, and we we tend to approach it in one of two ways: um, either talking to the media owner themselves. Uh, and we might go through an intermediary like it, sorry, intermediary like Intermedia UK, which is another organisation I used to be part of, basically advertising for the media um, industry, or directly, uh, or through kind of partners and whatever. Or we'll go to the brands and the agencies and say, "Look at your list. Look at where your 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 content is going." Um, we can make a quite a good case of it now because you know we can pretty much make up. If it's, if it's people wanting a certain number of impressions, that can be made up in alternative um, mix-ups of media. Pink News is actually one of the fastest growing um, media organizations in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, It's making a market in much the same way that I said earlier on, that other companies can. So, yeah, the platforms one is difficult because we always run into the conversation about freedom of speech and freedom of expression and um, whether we're trying to censor newspapers from publishing stuff and we're saying no no we're not we're not in the business of telling a newspaper what they can and cannot publish we're merely in the business of advising businesses whether they want their brand and their yeah to fund it and also last point on this but this is a really interesting thing in the new kind of reforms let's call them the lindy acarino reforms they are now working out a model whereby individual influencers can get a portion of profits or portion of revenue from um, the advertising that happens around their content, mm-hmm. which means that advertisers are now basically directly funding people like Andrew Tate and a whole assortment of people who have made Twitter their home because it's because it's become this sort of anarchic...
2: The only place that they are, that they can go, like, exactly. you know, the Donald Trumps and Tucker Carlsons and that sort of discourse where, okay, you can't be on a broadcast... Show anymore on Fox News in Tucker Carlson's case. Oh no, I'll host it my show on Twitter instead. Mm, and mm. so, what—that's kind of all you need to know on that. Or truth social,
1: I guess, or, or the know, these other right-wing. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah.
0: The connection between the money and the hatred is so much more distinct. Like we've in the in the past, we've had to sort of draw it out for people and show people the ecosystem. Say, this is how it kind of flows. But this is a really obvious example of just like Elon Musk and the in the the administration of Elon Musk is trying to. Kind of incentivize people to use the platform, but people who are using the platform the people who are using it to spread disinformation and I don't know what I don't know what has to change there for that to change yeah. but mm-hmm. until then we will be telling brands to look at that as a risky exercise
2: I mean I don't know how um, its trust and safety team is at the moment but it was completely hollowed out mm, yeah and so and I don't think that's been backfilled um I could I could be wrong but I no, think I'm that's not aware of that no? that's that's the thing is if you don't have any kind of moderation, the kind of stuff that you see. Um, is it, it you can definitely see over the course of the last few months how that tone has changed mm-hmm. the type of content has changed and whether that's to do with the algorithm or the creators that are, f- are now on the platform it's just not uh, it's not a pleasant place as a as a consumer or as, an, as a user to be and so if that's the case then you know if it, I think you know various groups of uh, agency groups have said that 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 it was not on their like list of safe platforms or recommended platforms i think group M was probably the biggest
1: mm, mm. It, i mean all of these sort of changes have also you know r- risks the the trust the loss of trust of especially the the queer community ella perhaps you have thoughts i mean how do you regain that type of trust is it as simple as linda Yakarina going and, and telling oh we're actually gonna ch- make some changes or i mean from from a consumer standpoint you know mm. i think a lot of people's relationship with a platform like like X or or Twitter, has probably been sullied for the near future, at least.
2: I think a a lot of people did, you know, sometimes if you've been on Twitter for a while and you're like, oh, there's another Twitter storm going on, or sometimes you would just go and read through the kind of the thread section and be like, oh, Twitter is a crazy place. That was that, but it wasn't quite as toxic. Um, But trust can take years to build, but seconds to destroy, right? And and I don't think it's an easy fix of oh if if you just do the, this list of things maybe Cass you might have a a different perspective but I I think um, it's it's just making sure that um, the platform is somewhere that people want to be that's how you and it has the content that they are seeking out and if that's not there then the trust is going to be impossible to build back.
1: Uh, last work, word word on, on the topic, Cass elevator pitch. How should brands be navigating advertising to and for the queer community given all of the backlash, I suppose, and then the backlash to the backlash? It's a very complicated area, especially this year. What, what do you say if someone just asks you, look, we want to appeal to queer consumers, but we don't feel confident in in our ability to do that? How, how would you consult?
0: So the first thing I would say is talk to your LGBTQ plus staff they're the yeah as i said earlier on they are your best consultants on this you know as somebody people who are aligned with the mission of your brand and how it kind of fits into the conversation around inclusivity you need to make sure that any work that you do internally or externally um comes from the will of that constituency within the business so that's that's point one point two is have a plan in place for dealing with backlash um I recommend looking up a report called Braving the Backlash by We Are Social, the agency We Are Social. It's a little bit old. It's from 2018. We're actually in conversation with them to update it for the kind of 2023 and beyond. Um, So yeah, really have a plan for how you're going to deal with that. Train your social media managers, train your customer-facing people, um, make sure they know what what they're doing. And secondly, I mean, you know, seek consultancy from experts. There are many organizations who can guide you, not just in the aspect of Um, the policy writing, uh, but also looking at casting, looking at kind of creative consultancy. Um, There's a whole big matrix of groups out there. The Diversity Science Collective being a good example to help with um, kind of guiding on putting together advertising briefs um, to make sure the content is inclusive. So there's a number of measures. I will plug something that advertising is doing. So my principal output as the co-director of advocacy is hopefully in November theoretically we're going to be producing and releasing uh the universal one-stop shop guidebook for inclusive advertising for everybody involved in the space so for brands there'll be measures in there for brands for agencies for regulators for ad tech and we essentially want to make it as easy as possible for people to say here's the single source of truth we're going to get you know the legitimacy of many organizations supporting and pulling together to produce this work um so that you know anybody who's in this space can go as an answer to your question the elevator pitch will become read that book um so those are probably the three most important things i think and then also the last thing which is a bit of an esoteric point that sometimes gets missed which is programmatic and ad tech uh and how your content can land in dark pools or like um pools of advertising inventory uh with questionable mm-hmm. destination essentially and it's all very kind of obscured i recommend um following the work of nandini jammy and mm-hmm. check my ads in america they are excellent on this stuff
1: I, i'll plug we, we i did do a feature interview with them last year so you can go and read that on, on the media leader as well yeah they do do very interesting work
0: the work is out there the guidance is out there it's just f- first of all people need to go out and look for it but secondly, uh, we're we're engaged in the work of trying to make it as easy as possible by drawing all of this stuff together. Working with Check My Ads to produce this as well, to you know
1: move the dial in a meaningful way. Mm. I want to transition us briefly into a, a quick hit section. Um, we don't have too much time, and and I was going to ask about uh, some recent news about about. Twitter, but we've actually already, I think, covered (laughs) it. So uh, I can skip that one. Um, One of the other big pieces of news uh, over the past week was Disney reporting its second quarter earnings. Um, Analysts were sort of mixed on on the results there, but notably the company said that it would be hiking the price of uh, its ad-free subscriptions to both Disney Plus and Hulu Plus. Um, I don't know if either of you are subscribers, actually.
2: Sort of. (laughs) my, My friend, Claudia, and I, Share a Disney Plus. <gasps> um, oh no, you're gonna get done as well. I know. <laughs> uh, and so we set that up in 2020 to as a free trial to watch all of the Star Wars movies back to back in the middle of the pandemic. Um, and did we watch that all kind of you know remotely that sort of Netflix party style? But and now I think there's 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 a bunch of us who have like our own profiles on 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 the account. Hmm. Um, but I don't know how much longer that will last. And the price, well, they're gonna crack down strategy, on password yeah, sharing. yeah. And the password sharing. Like you know, as we discussed uh, like earlier in the week with Netflix, it's kind of the same playbook of cracking down on password sharing and then making that divide between the ad-funded tier and the ad-free tier so much so that you will like a lot of people will probably choose to move to a a much cheaper tier. I think the the difference in price at the moment it's just in the states where that they've they've mm-hmm. kind of done those price rises but you can take that as an indicator that there's about like 8-9 dollars between each tier for Disney Plus, Hulu, ESPN Plus, that sort of thing. So that's kind of what's what's coming. Essentially pushing mm. people pushing to to, the, to probably do the, the ad tier the unless ad you really tier. have
1: the money for it.
2: Um yeah. yeah, I think I think it's so that they can try and get more eyeballs there for the advertisers, but I just wonder what that makeup of the audience is going to be and Omar mentioned this earlier in the week in our podcast, a journalist podcast was like, what is that demographic that goes for that cheaper tier that's ad funded going to be that appealing for advertisers? And maybe this is how they try and get more of that like mm. sort of um, hard to reach audience to shift down.
1: Mm. I don't know. Cass, do you do, do you subscribe to to the streaming yeah. services? So I I I pay for the,
0: my family's. Disney Plus, incidentally. So, like, my dad pays for the Netflix, my mum pays for the Amazon Prime, and we kind of all share. A little bit. It's <laughs> nice, but obviously. That's good. I like, think they've already they've already sorted the Netflix thing out. So now I can't get access to it. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think uh, I mean I actually pay for the premium one. Turns out I don't actually get the ad free one. Although I probably will get the ad free one just because the principal motivator of me as with most consumers right now is the cost of living crisis. Mm. And I obviously want to, I'm a massive dork. So pretty much anything the Star Wars puts out, I will consume <laughs> for better or worse. And I, I like having that. I like, I, actually probably it's one of my favourite ones really, mm. um, just because of the, est- the massive estate that Disney now own. But um, it's not significant enough for me to say to say goodbye to it. Mm. I'd very happily say goodbye to it. And what will happen as as we've already been seeing is that more and more people faced with the fact that they can't get all the content they want in one place? You're paying for four different prescript- streaming services. Subscriptions. It's crazy. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Everyone's going to go back to torrenting things like we like they did in the. I think we, I didn't. I was <laughs> four in 19, 2000. But, <laughs> but but you know, like people did in the nineties, and 90s, it will just it will just return to um,
2: pirating, it. cheating the yeah. system. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: because obviously, <laughs> I get you know inflation being this kind of pervasive issue globally. But it will lead to people farming off those kinds of those kinds of um, I don't even really call them luxuries because it feels like escaping from boredom is no longer a luxury for us.
2: Mm-hmm. But. Yeah, it's that kind of whole conversation of, oh, just don't buy a coffee and don't have as much like streaming services And yeah. like, and then you'll be able to afford this. And I'm like, I don't think that's how it works. Um, yeah, I, I don't <laughs> think the, the, yeah, won't be yeah. able to, like, you know, buy a house because I don't buy like I cancel my Disney Plus subscription or whatever. Right, right. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Um, it's worth also noting that that these changes, especially in Disney's case, are, are happening in the background of of sag strikes that mm. are going on. I, I know, Cass, this is a topic that that you're passionate about as well. Uh, I mean, how do you view any any business move that uh, a major entertainment company is making at the moment um, to to shore up their business while there's also this whole thing about well, they're not actually paying their, the creators. It, yeah, it really sticks in my
0: craw, basically, because it it does speak to that that topic i was saying earlier on about responsibility in capitalism and i uh i talk about stakeholder capitalism um actually one of the so when i when i joined the team at the ft going back a little bit um i joined uh the team that had come up with and was rolling out what they call the new agenda which is the ft's punt at looking at a new way that capitalism can be done and it involves looking at the move from thinking about a company is having solely fiduciary responsibilities to shareholders versus having a, a wider societal responsibility to all the people in its orbit. Uh, and that includes, part of that responsibility includes paying your your staff, paying your actors, paying your... I think the VFX people are now going on, um, have now unionized as well. So hmm. it's going to become really, really quite dire for Disney if they don't sort this stuff out, because they've got no avenues to create content if the VFX people go off. So, but I, th- I think I look at this in the broader context of companies forgetting or maybe not thinking about themselves. As organisations of people with responsibility to society. Now we obviously, you know, may approach this from different contexts because, in obviously America, we have the hobby lobby thing, and and you know, uh, businesses being considered political actors for the purposes of lobbying, mm-hmm. um, which is a slightly different thing than what I'm talking about, which is more about actively at the top level of business, executives thinking about risks and bottom line impacts that might be taken by doing good work environmental work social work i mean what we'd call esg but i call so- corporate social responsibility i don't call it that. i didn't come up with that but but it's a term that i I use quite a lot because it does speak to that and you know disney are failing that that test as many others are i mean we're seeing the public sector strikes in this country um it will only get worse it's only gonna get more and more significant. I don't know what we'll have to crack for its change, but you know, we're moving in the direction of I don't want to say general strike territory like I'm some kind of radical syndicalist, but it's um <laughs> but it's definitely you there's something in the air. It feels like it's moving in that direction.
1: Mm. Well, on that cheery note, that <laughs> is sorry, revolutionary zeal. <laughs> <laughs> that is all the time that we have, but it's been such a pleasure chatting with you about some really important topics today. Cass, Ella, thank you both for joining me. Thank you, thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to The Media Leader Podcast. This episode was edited by our production partners, Trisonic. You can find and listen to all our episodes on our website at themedialeader.co.uk or wherever you get your podcasts. But just remember, please do subscribe to be notified when we release our next episode. From all of us at The Media Leader, I'm editor Omar Oaks. Our executive producer is Jack Benjamin. See you next time.